Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. I'm going to be talking about legal authority uh, this evening. And um, I'm going to be talking it in relation to what we bear, the image of God. Um, Catholics all know, or certainly used to, that um, uh, authority uh, belongs to God. And when humans exercise it, it's, it comes to them from God. And in particular, the authority of those two legal potestates, legal authorities on, on this earth, church and state, um, seen as divinely instituted. But that's going to be connected with what's going on when we ourselves uh, are involved in political authority, because not only does authority come from God, but we are involved in it, and we are in particular subject to it as bearing the image of God. And that means that uh, when we relate to legal authority, we don't relate to it like any old bit of general nature. Uh, we are distinctive uh, on this earth in bearing the image of God as capable of reason and freedom, unlike the bunny rabbits, certainly unlike sticks and stones. Um, and it's through that metaphysical distinctiveness that we are capable of operating and being governed by legal authority, both in the case of the state through the civil law of the state and in the case of the church when we're subject to the canon law of the church. Um, and they're both uh, sovereign legal authorities, according to Catholic teaching. The, the technical term is potestates. They're both cases of a potestas, as Leo XIII taught. And they relate to us as metaphysically distinctive. Um, and that involves, when we think of ourselves as bearing the image of God, that means that though we may share certain features, at least analogically with God, like our capacity for reason, it's going to work differently in our case. When God does something for a reason, he isn't subject to some power or force that gets him to do it, because he isn't subject to power or force at all. He's impassable in the widest sense of that term. But when we do something for a reason, something outside of us moves us to do it. When we believe something for a reason, something outside us moves us, exercises a kind of power or force on us to make us do it. And that's going to be central to understanding something very important about law, which is, I'm going to call it, its directivity. Aquinas called law one of the external principles of action. By an external principle, he meant something coming from outside that's a beginning of action, that's it's a source of force or power that moves us to act. And he, he said that for very good reason. We're entirely familiar with this feature of law. When, when a state passes law, it expects something, unless it's really feeble, giving up the ghost, it expects something to happen as a result of passing that law. If a law contains directives, legal obligations to do one thing or another, it expects a significant part of the population, the law-abiding, to do as legally obliged. So there's some sort of power or force uh, coming from the legal authority via the legal directive to get people to conform to the legal directive. And you'd call that directivity. It's a sort of normative pointing accompanied by something that pushes you or, you know, might, you might still be free to, to do something else, but at least nudges you 
um, in the direction of doing what's legally obligatory. It's not an accident that once the law is passed, a, a fair amount of the population start doing what they're legally supposed to in a, at least a well-run state. So this directivity involves a kind of power or force coming to us from outside. And I'm going to suggest that's true right through law. <clears throat> now, this view of law as involving a kind of directivity is not denied by anyone, far from it. But it doesn't involve an area of debate in modern legal theory. If you go to a modern department of law or philosophy and you do a course on the philosophy of law or jurisprudence, you will find a number of things that are a matter of debate. One thing will not be much debated, not in fundamentals. That's the theory of how fundamentally law operates to get us to do things and what its fundamental function in so doing is you'll see a widespread consensus about this. And here we will see the thought isn't that there's a power or force coming to us from without at all. Rather, uh, when the modern legal philosopher uh, uh, thinks about uh, legal authority, he will see it as fundamentally a human creation, not instituted by God. And he will see a force by which law moves, legal directives move us to do things as generated by ourselves. It's going to be the force of human desire. And he's going to see the whole structure of legal directives as having fundamentally a coordinatory function. So you could read a legal positivist like Herbert Hart, or I suppose Joseph Raz, or you could read someone who calls themselves a natural lawyer like John Finnis, and you'll see a very similar story about how legal authority directs us. The story is told just at the level of positive, human, human positive legal authority and human positive law. There isn't anything about the directive force of natural law, we'll come back to that, not even in John Finnis, I can assure you. Uh, it's completely silent about that. Uh, all the directive force uh, and the story about the function of legal authority is told about positive legal authority and its positive legal authority as set up by humans, as they suppose, in the case of the state, fundamentally. Okay. So what happens? Well, the story actually is fairly familiar. It goes back to, to, um, to Thomas Hobbes, in essence. We all want similar things that depend on our acting together. We want, for one thing, we want security. We want goods like transport and education. Um, uh, we, want, we want various forms of, of, of support for the needy. <clears throat> All these things uh, we share a desire for, uh, or we certainly would very much want them if you find ourselves in certain circumstances that we might very well find ourselves in. So we have a general concern for these, these goods that uh, we're used to finding to various degrees publicly provided for by legal authority. And these, de and, and these desires are... Lead us by a series of conventions, perhaps not an agreement as Hobbes thought, but at any rate a series of conventions of developing customs, to uh, uh, set up or give rise to legal authorities. So some people by convention get to rule, other people get to follow their legal directives. And there are various rules about how you get to be in the joyous position or not so joyous position of being a ruler, and how you end up just being in the position of having to follow the directives. Um, but we needn't worry about the details. Something like that will be going on in every case. 
And uh, once the legal authority is up and running, uh, because we think that uh, it's going to provide ordering coordination, it will decide whether we drive on the left or the right, at what rate we will pay tax, who is liable to military service to provide us with our protection, and so forth. Um, we stand ready, we are disposed, we are willing, we desire to do within reason whatever the legal authority directs us to do as a means better to getting what we already want. And also, of course, along the way, should we be, um, lose our interest in these things that we already wanted, like transport, uh, education, uh, welfare, and all the rest, uh, we also stand ready to do what the legal authority directs as a means to avoiding punishments for not doing it. Those punishments providing the extra dimension of security to give us all uh, reassurance that order will be preserved. And it is, we're not mugginses ourselves if we conform to the order because other people are likely to do so as well. Um, this story is, you can read it in Hobbes, you can read it in John Finnis's Natural Law and Natural Rights at a slightly more general level uh, with a deliberate avoidance of Hobbesian language, but that, that's fundamentally the coordinatory story. And, you know, it's, it's around in Joseph Raz. It's a, it, it's a very appealing story, and essentially it means that legal authority is a kind of coordinative system which directs what I'm going to call, following Thomas Hobbes, the voluntary. The voluntary being what we can do or refrain from doing just because we've been legally directed to do it or commanded to do it, if you want to use the language of command. Um, oh, oh. Again, because it's subject to our will or desire, what we can do or refrain from simply as a means to avoiding punishments. So the sphere of the voluntary includes paying taxes at a certain rate. Yeah, I can, I can, I can decide to do that or, or uh, do it or refrain from doing it simply to avoid punishments uh, or to, at any rate, meet a, meet a legal directive even if I'm not bothered by the punishments. Um, you know, tax law is going to be regulating the voluntary. Similarly, where I park my car and whether I go in for acts of theft or not. All these are, are voluntary actions that I can go in for or refrain from in the case of theft as a, as a means to following state directives. Okay. That goes with the, this picture of legal authority as fundamentally a coordinative system where we stand ready to do whatever legal authority within reason, whatever legal authority asks us to do as a better means to satisfying uh, what we anyway desire. Like desire for transport, security, uh, assurance of property and all that sort of thing. That's the basic picture. Of course there are lots of debates uh, amongst all modern philosophers of law uh, within this general framework. Oh, um, a final thing, uh, rather implicit in what I was saying, but let's make it explicit very fast. What power or force moves me to follow the legal directives? Well, it's going to be the power or force of my desires, my desire to do what the law directs me to do, and, and possibly also my desire to avoid punishment. And these are mental states that can exercise ordinary causal force, the same kind of causal force uh, that a brick might exercise to break a window. Um, Hobbes, the divisor of this coordinate theory of legal authority as a coordinative system, was of course a materialist. And he thought there was only one kind of power in nature, ordinary causal force imparted by motions and matter to cause or prevent motions and other bits of matter. 
like brick-sitting windows, and he was a materialist who thought um, mental states were just notions and matter as well. We don't need to worry too much about materialism. What is very important is the sort of naturalism about power. We're dealing with the same kind of ordinary causal power, the case of what moves us to uh, uh, follow the law, uh, obey the law, as, as is involved in a brick-baiting window. So, you know, through, through ordinary perceptual processes, I detect that the legal authority has directed me to do something. I've got this standing desire to do what legal authority directs me to do. I also wish to avoid punishments. And so these two, uh, the, the cognition of the directive interacts, engages with my desire to do what I've been directed to do, and so I, I conform to the law. So there's a metaphysically entirely unproblematic picture of how legal direct directivity works. And uh, the directive force of law is immediately the creation of human desire. That's where it's all coming from. It's, we're collectively determining ourselves to do what the state requires us to do okay. through the collective act of the force of our desire, uh, collective operation of our, our desires. Okay. You might be a, a natural law theorist like John Finnis and, 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 and say, well, but we must remember uh, that um, uh, this, cooperative, this coordinative structure that issues directives that govern the voluntary, that we conform to through the force of our ordinary desires, has a function. Its function is to apply standards of reason. And maybe uh, we should build on that thought to think that we, it's legitimate to appeal to reason uh, in, the, in, in the way we interpret laws. And a legal positivist, particularly of an old-fashioned sort, might get very reluctant to concede anything like that. And he thinks we can have a conception of legal authority of the sort I've been describing so far, uh, and a completely adequate uh, account, we can get a completely adequate account of our concept of law while refraining from appeal to any normative notions like the idea of standards of reason or standards of morals or anything like that. <clears throat> we can just we can just go full naturalistic on our theory of law. Um, but both sides taking the same view of how legal authority works, so a coordinative system, which may or may not have a rational function, and it operates through the force of ordinary causation. Um, that's why when you look in your modern legal philosophy textbook at the history of legal philosophy, uh, and they talk about natural law theory, which I'm going to return to in a rather more um, forceful form in a minute, um, they will often say that Thomas Hobbes is a natural law theorist. <laughs> and it, uh, if you're Mark Murphy, who's one of the most eminent historians of, of natural law theory in North America, God help us, um, he will say that Thomas Hobbes is a paradigm natural law theorist. If you read John Finnist, you will read that Hobbes is a natural law theorist, but with an inadequate account of, of what standards of reason require of us. It's more than just survival, John thinks. Uh, but both of them see Thomas Hobbes as a natural law theorist. Why? Well, because in Hobbes, uh, there is a law of nature prior to state authority, which is a set of theorems about how to preserve your life. And the authority of the state arises by covenants, which we all agree uh, amongst ourselves, as a means to preserving our life. So legal authority arises and exists to apply the natural law. And Hobbes is very clear in Leviathan that actually you can properly appeal to natural law, as he understands it, to interpret ambiguities in positive laws, that any decent ruler would expect you to do that. 
After all, it's all about preserving your life, isn't it? Okay. So, of course, on this rather thin theory of natural law, he's a natural law theorist. One very important feature of standards of reason, as I've, of reason as I've introduced it to you so far, is it exists simply <clears throat> as a set of standards of appraisal. All it is is a set of standards by which we rate certain things as reasonable or rational, and other things as unreasonable or irrational. Um, so, you know, you want to lock your leg off for no particular other end in mind, I would class that desire as unreasonable. Uh, uh, you wish to work for Goldman Sachs and become immensely rich. Well, if I were worldly, I'd regard that as very reasonable. Anyway, we can all argue the toss about what the standards actually require, but all, all that reason is doing is allow us, allowing us to classify mental states and the actions they motivate and legal authorities and the laws that they pass as more or less reasonable. Um, Natural lawyers will say it's part of our concept of the legal authority that we think of it in those terms. Um, leave that aside. We're looking at standards of reason simply as modes of appraisal. They're not, they're purely normative. They're not playing any explanatory role in anything. They're not explaining what happens. They're allowing us to appraise what happens once it happens. All that's explaining what actually happens at the level, all that's explaining outcomes at the level of political life, the life of the state, are a load of human desires interacting with legal authority, uh, operating us through our cognition of its directives. That's all that's going on through ordinary causation. Uh, and we can rate that as more or less unreasonable depending on what we think of the state. <clears throat> Nazi state rates low, other states perhaps rate higher, but that's just our appraisal. <clears throat> all that's explaining what actually happens are our desires and their causal force. <clears throat> so like Tim Scanlon will actually say, it's a mark of the normative to be distinct from the explanatory. It's nothing to do with causation or anything like that. Okay. Right. Well, of course, Thomas Hobbes was not have been so obviously seen in his own day as a straightforward natural lawyer. Uh, certainly for a Catholic of the early 17th century, he would have been seen as the enemy of natural law because he was the enemy of something that was central to Catholic natural law theory, which was a theory of legal authority that could accommodate the church as a potestas. The one thing that Hobbes's political project is about is redefining what legal authority is so that the church is no longer a plausible possessor of sovereign legal authority. It's no longer a plausible potestas. Okay, so uh, what this post-Hobbesian model of legal authority is actually highly controversial, at any rate, historically. And it was introduced to do a task, a discrediting task, that was specifically anti-Catholic. Now, um, if you look at the Catholicism claim that the church is a potestas, we're clearly going to have, if it is a legal authority, a sovereign legal authority, it's clearly something very unlike the state, as I've so described it in post-Hobbesian legal theory, whether that of a natural, modern natural lawyer or of a legal positivist. You wouldn't think of the church simply as a coordinative structure, enabling us better to satisfy a load of desires that we all share, that we already have. Not a very plausible picture of the church. 
Surely the church fundamentally, I mean, it may do a bit of coordinative work along the way, will coordinate your liturgical vestment colours for the season, and that goes on. But that's, that's not fundamental to, to the authority of the church, and one suspects it's not fundamental to her canonical system, her system of positive law, which is about not coordinating the satisfaction of desires we already have, but changing quite radically what we believe and want in the first place. And to do it as a teacher, not again, clearly not simply as a coordinator. And clearly no one is going to think if the church has genuine authority that this is a human creation, because clearly if the church has authority, it's got to be divinely instituted. So we've got a divinely instituted potestas, if the church is a potestas at all, that's clearly not simply about coordinating the satisfaction of existing desires. Her authority structure, presumably a system of laws included, and we'll come back to that, is about changing not what you do simply at the point of a voluntary, the better to satisfy desires you already have, but to change what you believe or want. And it's going to involve a force that isn't simply a force coming from within human nature, the causal force by ordinary desires, but a quite different force coming from without. What I'm going to call, uh, to use a general term for this kind of force, a normative power. And I'll come back to what that normative power might be. A normative power because it's going to be a force of truth or goodness that comes to us from without, from genuine truth and goodness from God himself, to move us to do what God is going to require of us. Um, okay, so we've got a rather different not so naturalistic picture, one that seems to engage us as beings receptive to normative power, uh, as bearing the image of God. Okay. <clears throat> and that is precisely the, the idea of legal authority that we'll get in, in, in Catholic uh, legal theory in the early modern period. And it wasn't just applied to them by them to, to the church, because they thought that this was, in general terms, the right way to think about a potestas, whether it's church or state. Again, the state clearly coordinates things. No one denies that the state introduces traffic systems and the like. But it's also a teacher. And it's divinely instituted. And it, the force by which it, its laws move us, again, is not simply a human creation. It's a force that exists prior to any human legal authority, which human legal authority is going to channel, and um, it's, it's going to be a normative power. Um, and it's going to change our beliefs and desires, not simply change what we do at the level of the voluntary. So it's going to lead us to form beliefs and motivations that without the authority of the state we would not have been capable of holding, or not nearly as capable, and I'll come back to that. Okay, so uh, on the one hand, we've got the, the, the post-Hobbesian theory of, of legal authority as a coordinative device operating through ordinary causation. And then we have the pre-Hobbesian theory of both ecclesial and political authority as a kind of coercive teaching mechanism, or part of a, the legal part is part of a wider coercive teaching mechanism, which uh, is about enabling us for our own good and the good of the communities we're part of to form motivations and to hold beliefs that we would not have been capable of holding without the legal authority. 
and is going to operate through a kind of normative power, or powers not just simply ordinary causation operating uh, through our desires. So how, let's, let's look at the case of the state first, and then we'll move to the case of the church. Well, before we get to the state, we need to understand the power, that's going, the normative power that's going to be operating on us to move us to conform to the laws of the state, as understood within Catholicism. Um, uh, how does it operate? It's pre, it, it exists prior to legal authority. It also exists prior to human desires. It leads us to form desires in the first place. And it's a force of truth and goodness. It's the force of reason. And actually, it's something we all really believe in. Now, if I give you a really chunky argument for a conclusion in mathematics or in history or something or other, I'm going to introduce a claim to you, which is a kind of mental object, you know, conclusion of the mathematical argument or historical claim. And if, I, if, I'm, if I'm good at argument, arguing, you're going to, it's going to look evidently true to you. And you're going to say, gosh, that looks so evidently true, I'm be- compelled to believe it. <laughs> but that really compelling proof. We use the word compulsion in relation to arguments. That argument has great force. We use the word force in relation to rational arguments as well. And what we have in mind is this, that our mind is so constituted given that we bear the image of God and we have capacity for rationality, when someone makes a a truth-related claim to you to get you to believe something, or supposing someone wants to get you to decide to do something, um, so practically, they will introduce a kind of potential object of belief to you, or potential option by way of something you might decide to do, buy that house, and they will start trying to get you to respond to what they present to you as the force of truth or goodness that supports you believing that or deciding on that. Hence the mathematical proof or the historical argument. Hence the estate agent will say, this is a really nice house. Um, uh, A better part of Belgravia you could never hope to discover. Uh, uh, and it's well within your means, and, um, blah, blah, and we can throw in, we can throw in uh, free lights to the garden in addition, and all that sort of thing. And you know, you start that sort of that I buy that house looks a really good thing to do. You start wanting to buy the house, and and, and, and you finally decide to do it again with the argument. You know, Gosh, that looks a rather plausible theory of what was going on in that that, that historical period. Yeah, it looks too true. And this isn't supposed to be just a con job, because what I'm doing when I produce the arguments is presenting genuine justifications for believing these things, for deciding in those things, which are supposed to move you. And the more rational you are, the more liable you are to be moved by them. The people who are immune to argument are very stupid. Uh, it's not a praise. Uh, um, you want to be vulnerable to good arguments. You want to be invulnerable to bad ones. You want to respond to the justifications. <clears throat> but it's a power that moves you, that you're subject to, and we, we can think of it as compelling. Um, and indeed, in early modern uh, Catholic metaphysics, there are various theories about when normative power takes compelling form, when you have no freedom not to believe anything other than than the, the theoretical justifications. And maybe that could sometimes be true of, of the goodness of options as well. Like the goodness of the beatific vision, when, when you're presented as an option in heaven, it's so good, you can't refuse it. Okay, um, well, 
we have this natural capacity to respond to truth and goodness operating as a normative power through objects of our thought. Now, lots of metaphysical problems are going to do it developing. What is an object of thought? What ontological status has a sort of claim that I, could, I entertain or an option I entertain in my mind's eye? It hasn't yet happened. It might or might not be true, but I entertain it as a, an object of, potential object of belief or, or decision. What's his ontological status? Power seems to be operating through it. They often describe it as a kind of cause, but it doesn't exist like a brick hitting a window. This isn't, this isn't ordinary causation. This is something that engages us bearing the image of God. Uh, something that uh, uh, less privileged beings, it passes by. It doesn't engage them at all. Um, we've, we have the capacity. Why do we need the state? We, we just respond to reason, or we respond to truth, and we get along perfectly well. Well, um, it's not simply because we need a coordinator. The, the, claim, the thought in early modern Catholic legal philosophy is this. There are certain truths about uh, the world that we can't understand just as private individuals or just as collections of private individuals. And these are going to be truths about what constitutes a genuinely common good, the good of an entire community of human beings who are including many with whom you have no private collection, connection. They're not an immediate neighbour of you, they're not their, your friend or anything like that, they're not a member of your family, but they're somebody with whom you will have to live. Okay. And they argue that we need political institutions and political authority to enable us to understand the bonum communi, what would genuinely contribute to it, and what's true about it. Here's an example. Just as private individuals, we've got an understanding of goods and possession. I can see, you know, you're hungry, you might eat some food, so I'll hand you my sandwich. Uh, uh, we might gang together to transfer uh, uh, some goods to some other people in need. Uh, I might keep some goods for myself because actually I, I rather need to eat, thank you very much. Uh, and anyway, I, I got there first. Um, so we can understand possession, we can understand transfer, and a, and a kind of morality of that. It's a perfectly good form of morality. And it's not just about self-interest. We can understand uh, altruistic arguments for giving someone something to someone else. But do we, just as private individuals, understand property as a public good from an impartial point of view uh, that can, uh, 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 and the conditions for its justice concerning an entire human community? They thought we probably don't. They thought, and this isn't a conceptual matter, it's just a claim about how the human species is constituted, we need political institutions to enable us to develop that impartial point of view, to enable us to develop an understanding of property as a genuine public good from an impartial point of view. And then they will argue that legal authority is about communicating that understanding through, for example, laws protecting property rights. So when the judge sends the thief down for five years for nicking stuff, he might well say, right, blogs, I'm sending you down for five years. I'm aware I've got a judge in the audience who probably never done anything like this, but anyway. Um, I'm going to send you down for five years to send a message about the importance of property and how really bad it is to, to thieve stuff and disregard property rights. 
And the whole point of this sort of directive structure uh, uh, that asserts and protects property rights isn't simply to get people to avoid stealing things out of the fear of punishment. If that's all that was going on, you'd have to have a very large police force, and it'd have to be very efficient. If only fear of punishment and getting caught was stopping people stealing things, what you hope is that most people in your community will have heard the message and believe that property rights are really important. What the legal structure will do is teach them about the good of property. And that is the idea of, of law as a coercive teacher. The function of legal directives is to form part of a wider structure of messaging whereby legal authority stands witness to the true and the good concerning the Bonham community. And that means that you can even get a case where legal authority directly regulates something that's not voluntary at all. With theft, the act of theft itself is something you can do or refrain from at will on the basis of the decision to do it, at any rate, in theory. But what about belief? What about the regulation of belief? Now, if you look at modern legal philosophy, they generally assume that states aren't in the belief regulation business. Why? Belief is not a voluntary action. I can't form a belief. Simply better to, co to cooperate with others as part of some traffic system or something like that. And I certainly can't form a belief simply to avoid punishments. The only thing that will make me to form a belief is something that gets me to see the object of the belief as true. And commands just to form a belief. And threat, threats of punishment uh, uh, for, that I, I will suffer if I don't form belief, on their own, won't do anything, it seems. Simply, as part of the coordinative system, they're going to have no effect on what I believe, believe. Which is why Hobbes, central to Hobbes's political theory, is a constant stream of argued assertions by Hobbes that because law is about coordination, you cannot legally regulate belief. Except, of course, virtually every European country at the time Hobbes was born in 1588 and, and, and for a while thereafter contained laws regulating belief. I'm not just talking about the canon law of the Catholic Church. If you look at most European states in the Catholic world, but also some non-Catholic ones as well, they had civil laws punishing heresy. These are laws requiring you not to believe something and punishing you if you... Uh, these are laws requiring you to hold certain beliefs and not doubt or disbelieve those claims and threatening you with punishment if you express your doubt or disbelief in the public forum, in the external forum. Um, laws against heresy remained in the books uh, in this country as part of the common law after the Reformation. Statute law against heresy went with the Reformation in England. But the common law on heresy remained until 1677, uh, much to Hobbes' disgust and fear, because he thought after the rest Restoration, the Anglican bishops were going to come for him. The last heretics to be burnt in England uh, were by Anglicans. And it's not just Justin Welby and a cosy jumper. Uh, that was since around 1613 under James I. But, uh, these are people who denied the Trinity. <clears throat> uh, so it's a common law offence, and it was enforced for a long while. So Hobbes is denying that you can have laws that clearly exist in early modern Europe. How does this work? Well, clearly, when I require you to believe something, I'm not just saying, we'll punish you if you don't, or the traffic system will go better if you believe this, or we'll offer you a prize if you believe it. We say, we require you to believe it because it's true. We stand witness to its truth, as people know, as the state knows, and the function of the threats of punishment 
are to ram home a, a further dimension of the message, which is the expression of doubt or disbelief in what we, we require you to believe will be gravely damaging to the community. That's what the message is. And of course, heresy laws still exist. Most continental countries now have Holocaust denial laws. These laws punish the crime of expressing disbelief in the Holocaust in the external forum. They look very like Holocaust denial laws, and they're about communicating, one, the truth of the Holocaust actually happened, and two, with the threats of punishment, communicating the thought that disbelief in the Holocaust, when expressed within the external forum, is deeply damaging to a political community because it's, it's the centre of, of anti-Semitism, as it clearly is in most cases. Unless someone's just mad. Um, so, um, states do this. The Catholics have a theory of the state as a coercive witness and teacher that makes perfect sense of this. The post-Hobbesians do not which is why they get completely a knots when they look at these laws. I've, I've, a number of legal seminars I've been dealing with in North America about this, where you get these rules in the same, but, 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 that's this compute. Uh, <laughs> but it happens. I mean, so, how does the church fit into this system? Well, I've said the church doesn't look like a coordinative system, enabling us better to satisfy, coordinate satisfaction of desires we already hold. It looks as though it's a kind of teacher, and it looks as though its job is to teach us to form uh, uh, beliefs and desires that would not otherwise have been possible for us. Now we've got actually a view of state authority that's working in the same way. The, the beliefs and desires or motivations the state is inducing us that we wouldn't have been uh, so capable of otherwise are to do with the Bonham community. Motivations to pursue the Bonham community, true beliefs about what the Bonham community requires. In the case of the church, we have an end that isn't earthly happiness at all, it's the supernatural happiness of heaven. So quite comprehensively, all the church is teaching us as a matter of revelation is something is not something we're naturally capable of believing uh, uh, or, or, or pursuing. Um, what's and it's obviously divinely instituted, just as the state was, because God designed us to be able to uh, respond to reason at the private level, but not without political institutions at the, at the public level. So God intended us to form political authority to enable us to pursue the bond community at a collective level and understand it. So God gave us the church as the means to attain the supernatural end, and he introduces a new kind of normative power, not that of ordinary reason, to enable us to attain the supernatural end, and this is the power of grace, which in late scholastic is very often referred to as a higher reason. It is a force of truth and goodness that directs us to the supernatural end, as the ordinary force of re reason directs us to truth and goodness at the, level, at the natural level. And I won't go into the details, but if you look at the metaphysics of normative power in late scholasticism, and this comes over into Protestantism as well, because a lot of the metaphysics is shared. I'm give you Anglicans are doing the same sort of thing as Suarez and Molina and the rest. They will use the same sort of metaphysics drawn out of Aristotle's theory of causation to explain both force of natural reason to get us to uh, decide on things and to believe things, and to a degree also, modulo various complications, uh, the force of grace. 
Final causation particularly is he appealed to both to explain uh, what motivates us to decide on things as through a force of goodness at the natural level and what uh, provides the force of prevenient grace at the supernatural level where we're prepared, excited, exciting graces sometimes to, to perform the supernatural act. And it's not surprising they should use the same metaphysics. They've got the same basically layered uh, theory of, of, of human motivation for the natural and supernatural levels, as they have the same theory of law and legal authority for the natural and supernatural levels. Um, and of course, in the case of the church, we again have the legal regulation of belief, which continues. Uh, magisterial teaching is teaching of the church that comes with a legal requirement under the canon law of the church, read the 1983 code, to believe it. With the assent of faith, in the case of what's taught definitively, uh, with an, uh, a submission of, of, of intellect and will uh, at the level of what's told, taught us non-definitively. And that really does mean belief, if you look at Lumen Gentium, to which the code uh, refers. So we've got the legal direction of belief, uh, backing up teaching, um, and the authority by which all these legal requirements, both directing belief, but also other things like uh, the liturgy, and I'm about to come to that, um, <clears throat> all rest further, because coercive authority is a kind of coercive teacher, on the fundamental capacity of the legal authority, in this case the church, to understand and teach what serves the good of the ecclesial community that it governs. So actually, I mean, ecclesial authority is really interesting. You, you have, uh, if you look at magisterial teaching, you've got uh, authority to teach. Obviously, it's teaching. So, you know, it's the, authority, the church has the authority, epistemic authority, to teach you what revelation contains. Then you've got uh, legal authority directing you to believe what the church has taught you. Uh, that make, gives the canonical obligation in relation to magisterial teaching. And then backing this legislative authority is a more fundamental general epistemic authority, that of a teacher, uh, 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 but whereby the church possesses an epistemic authority, uh, a knowledge, and then its capacity to teach what would serve the common good of the church. So we've got a general theory that rests legislative authority on epistemic authority in both the case of church and state, and then a particular exercise of legislative authority in relation to magisterial teaching uh, that is, again, a form of teaching. Wow. It's very, very interwoven, <clears throat> which is why... Um, <laughs> I don't want to... There's a book just come out, by, which I had to review uh, for, for a journal, uh, uh, called Does Traditionis Custodes Pass the Juridical Rationality Test? <laughs> which is about... Uh, attacking the rationality of traditionis custodians, and I'm with him on that. I mean, it's a ghastly, idiotic law. Uh, um, but um, I was amazed when, when I read Rivoire saying teaching authority in the church is quite distinct from legislative authority. And when I'm attacking or criticizing the discipline of the church, uh, or the law of the church, I'm not attacking the teaching authority of the church. Well, no, mate, you can't separate them like that, they're interwoven which makes, actually, uh, the ghastly legislation involved in the Pauline liturgical reform and Pope Francis' equally more brutal backup for it all the more problematic, because you can't just say, this is just a bit of bother with, with church legislation. It's nothing to do with the church's teaching authority. Church's legislative authority is epistemic, as all legislative authority is. Okay. So... <clears throat> 
The reason I mention this is because I'm, I've noticed amongst my fellow traditionalists a, a, a worrying phenomenon developing, which is, um, I, I call it Pauline or Francis derangement syndrome in relation <laughs> to legal theory. And this is, this is they, they can see that Paul VI and, and, and Pope Francis' legislation in relation to liturgy was fairly ghastly and has had terrible effects. And let's not argue about that. I think we all agree, otherwise, why are we here? Um, uh, and uh, they think, oh, well, the, the Pope can't possibly have the authority to do this. They'll say things like, liturgy has nothing to do with law. If you legislate liturgy, you're fabricating liturgy, to quote late Joseph Ratzinger. And that's improper. And liturgical rights lie beyond papal authority or the legislative authority of the church. Um, and they also tell a story about uh, how the liturgical reform took place. And Rivoire, in particular, tells this story. He says, basically, somehow in the 1960s, there was an eruption within the church of a voluntaristic conception of law. Now, I've been saying that law as conceived in the Catholic tradition isn't an expression of arbitrary will. It's a form of teaching. So it's answerable to objective standards of truth and goodness. And it's communicating truth and goodness to you as a standard that pre-exists the uh, 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 humanly run legislative authority of the church and is, is communicated by it, just as there are objective standards of truth and goodness that pre-exist the authority of the state and that state law communicates to you through a form of coercive teaching. Okay. Um, but Rivoire is saying, what, goes, what happens in the 60s is, is people get this idea that the church's law is simply about the Pope's arbitrary will, and that's how you have the liturgical form. He, he says it's, it's, it's like um, the logic followed is normativistic and legalistic, which is not only inappropriate in itself, but seems particularly unsuited to the field of liturgy that it claims to regulate. A missal is not the highway code. Certainly this kind of normativistic view applied to the liturgy is not limited to Pope Francis. The same logic was at work in the liturgical reform of Paul VI. I very much doubt that what was happening in the 1960s, that Pope Paul VI got up in the day and thought, oh, I know how my legal authority works. It's like telling people to drive in the left rather than the right. So I'm going to abolish the Octave of Pentecost, just because I can. <laughs> I mean, no, uh, I, don't, I, I just don't think that was what's going. Let's look at how ecclesial authority was understood when Paul VI was at seminary. So we're looking back at the teens and 20s. Uh, of, of the last century. If you want to get an eminent theorist of, of, of ecclesial authority, you can't do better than look at the works of Edmond du Blanchet, eminent Marist theologian, contributor of enormous articles and very important articles to the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, that great repository of official theology in the Francophone Church between 1899 and 1950. And this chap was very young, he teaches in Rome, he teaches at Louvain, um, teaches all over the place, is given the task in 1911 of writing the article on Eglise, on the church and the church's authority. And in 1923, he writes the article on infallibility du pape, papal infallibility. Monstrously huge articles. He says both the same thing. Ecclesial law is a form of teaching. And the pope teaches... Uh, as do the bishops, not only directly when they issue formal doctrinal pronouncements, but when they issue laws. And this is a case of what he calls indirect or practical teaching. 
And when it's issued universally for everyone in the church, just because the Pope and the church are infallible as teachers, their legislation is infallible as well. It can never go wrong. And what it presupposes in terms of claims about faith and morals are guaranteed to be true. And we can see this in, very importantly, you know, when the, the Pope introduced a new feast in the church, like the Feast of Christ the King, or when he canonizes the saint introducing the liturgical feast, this is teaching about the nature of holiness. Can't be an error. Theologians have agreed about the infallibility of ecclesial legislation as a mode of teaching since the 16th century, and it's implicit in the price that uh, Christ promised to be with his church to the end of time. No one doubts this. It's certain. You can see what happened in the 1960s. If you've been brought up with this view that Papal legislation is infallible as a mode of teaching, effectively, or you, you know, that's a serious, serious assumption that you generally work with. Um, and you think the liturgy is one area where you legislate to teach people. Well, after all, the liturgy is a rule of faith. Of course, liturgical legislation is going to be educative. That's obviously true. Uh, and you suddenly think we've got in the middle of this huge cultural crisis with the church's problems of communication. The one person you know who can safely reform the liturgy to a degree greater than ever before and have the legislative authority to do it and cause no problems by it is Paul VI, undoubted Pope. And of course, anyone to criticise the really nasty tradies are disregarding his teaching authority. Well, actually, you are. You're disregarding his view about what's going to be good for the church at a very deep level. Very deep level. Um, what went wrong was not the idea that the Pope can regulate the liturgy. Clearly he can. Leo XIII, Immortale Dei, that famous statement of the legislative authority of the church uh, compared to that of the state. Whatever, therefore, in things human is of a sacred character, whatever belongs either of its own nature or of the end to which it is referred, to the salvation of souls, to the worship of God, to the worship of God, is subject to the authority and judgment of the church. Well, the issue is to do with the worship of God, obviously. So it's subject to papal authority. The problem with Dublanche is not in his theory of law, as a mode of teaching, it's clearly true. The problem with Dublanche is his assumption that legislation is infallible and his generalization from Vatican I to the degree to which the church teaches infallibly. And one of the things that's clearly happened with the liturgical reform is that if we understood what went wrong rightly, we can then understand the lesson, which is that actually, in general, ecclesial authority is not an infallible teacher. It can be an extremely mistaken teacher to a radical level. And I pointed this out in existing publication in relation to the legislation concerning Christian conduct to the Jews in the early modern period. So I don't think this is something that's new now. <laughs> this is something, there have been problems in one area or other of the life of the church right through its history. Once popes taught really immoral claims about how it was decent to behave towards Jews. They could be locked up in ghettos and forced to come to conversional sermons and forbidden to communicate with already baptised members of their families. Sorry, not yet baptised members of their families, they themselves were converts. Uh, you can get popes issuing really bad rules for liturgy, ones that disturb existing piety, that uh, are mislead as the content of divine revelation through omission, and all the rest. The 
one thing is not to claim that discipline is different from teaching and, 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 and that, 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 that somehow this was just a, a misguided expression of papal will. No, this was a misguided papal teaching. We were in the business of contradicting it. So all the Cardinal Roach thinks about us is kind of true. Now <laughs> stop. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating the podcast on the platform you are using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.